Robert Adams is a Welsh-born teacher, writer, and critic. For 11 years in Montreal and 8 years in Toronto, he presented an annual series of book reviews to sold-out audiences in both cities. According to what I've read, it was about 20,000 people a year. And when, whatever topic, whichever book that um, Robert selected, the book sales went through the roof. Over 3,000 books were sold of that particular book. In fact, uh, we know it in the United States as the Oprah Winfrey effect. They know it in Canada as the Robert Adams effect. He has often been profiled on television, including PBS, and his lectures were shown on TV on Terror for five years. They're still shown on book TV. His biography of the artist Alexander Berkovich was shortlisted for the 1988 Q-Spell Award and a love of reading. The first of two collections of his lectures was a national bestseller in 2001, I believe. How many books do you have like, that people can buy? Three books? No? <laughs> I'm glad we're not selling them tonight for a CSP fundraiser. Okay. <laughs> you can buy them on Amazon, and they're a nice thing to add for, to your library. Um, well, I mean, Robert did a lot of lecturing for many years. He took, he took some time to do lecturing on Crystal Cruise Line. He was a featured speaker, which meant he traveled around the world with Pearl, and they saw great places in the world, like one of my, my home country, South Africa, and they went to Cape Town and many places, met great people. He went to retirement. We pulled him out of retirement. It's like... Uh, What's that movie, The Godfather, you know, pulled back. He's pulled out of retirement to give a presentation to, uh, to us tonight. So I wanted to thank you, Robert, for coming tonight. I want to thank Pearl. Where's Pearl? Pearl for making it happen. You made it happen tonight, Pearl. Pearl is the significant other back there, the beautiful woman in the, with the pink thing. Thank you, Pearl Adams. Thank you very much. With that, we are ready to uh, join you on a... Expedition of the Forgotten by Ellie Wiesel. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, thank you very much, Ari. Uh, I see a number of people whom I know, my wife and my daughter in the back row. I see friends whom heard me speak on crystal cruises and been kind enough to come. New friends that we made in uh, Fashion Island when my wife went to buy a new iPad. <laughs> that was my gift to her for Valentine's Day, our anniversary, her birthday, uh, <laughs> and anything to come. Personally, I don't own a machine. I don't have a cell phone. I've never switched on a computer. I've written three books. I can't type. I don't do email. I don't tweet. <laughs> I, fortunately, when I was teaching, I taught in English and French. I, we live in Montreal. I taught at a, a Frank, French language uh, college and at an English university. And they let me stay until I, my retirement, although I was technologically illiterate because they were patient. I did my best and they, they let me finish. And now on Crystal, I don't, I don't have to use a machine. All the other lecturers use PowerPoints and lasers and they zap people and I, I just do talk and chalk, you know? Yeah, talk and chalk. Tonight I'm, I'm going to talk about Elie Wiesel and his novel, The Forgotten. Elie Wiesel, of course, is Jewish, but he is not only Jewish, 
he is a Hasid, and he is a Vishnitzer Hasid. Now, when I say that, there are always a few people who look at each other, raise their eyebrows, he doesn't wear a streimel, he doesn't have payas, he doesn't even wear a black hat, dark clothes, he doesn't wear white stockings or knee bridges, none of the distinctive clothing we associate with the various kinds of Hasidism. But he is a Vishnitsa Hasid. There is so, it is so important to know that. And people have questioned me when I've said it. That the last time I saw him, I met him in Montreal last year. He was speaking at Concordia University where I used to teach. And there was a reception afterwards to which I was invited. And we had a conversation and I said to him, and he was dressed as I am in a jacket, no keeper, no yamalka. I said, are you a Vishnitsa Hasid? And he said, yes, of course. That is who I am. Now, I don't necessarily refer to a writer's religious belief when I talk about a writer. Usually, it, it really doesn't matter, doesn't matter much. There are some writers for whom it is very important, like the American Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor. Catholicism informs her work. She is writing about a sacramental universe, and you must know that she is Catholic. The same is true with Elie Wiesel. To fully understand what Wiesel is and what he writes about and the message contained in his work, you have to understand that he is a Hasid, a Vishnitsa, because that informs his being. Now, I know that there are people in the audience who know more than I will ever know about the Hasidic movement within Judaism. But I also know that there are some people who don't really know about the Hasidic movement. So if you don't mind, and I'm going to do it anyway, <laughs> I'm going to spend just a few minutes for a, a quick overview on the Hasidic movement because it is so vital to understanding all of Wiesel's work. To understand Elie Wiesel's Hasidism, his need to study Talmud at least one hour every day, Talmud, the commentary on Torah. I have to go back briefly to Eastern Europe, Central Eastern Europe in the 18th century, in the Carpathian Mountains, in what is now Romania, there was a rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael ben Eliezer. He died in 1760. He is known to history as the Baal Shem Tov, the Hebrew expression, the master of the good name, or by his Hebrew acronym, the Besht. The Baal Shem Tov in the 18th century came to believe, rightly or wrongly, that the Judaism of his time had become sterile fossilized, institutionalized, ritualized, too far from God. And accordingly, 
the Baal Shem Tov began to teach that God is close to us, God is all around us, and each of us can have an intimate conversation with God, and that there are miracles around us every day. He taught that in spite of the physical danger of the violence in anti-Semitic Europe, we should find joy in life, joy in our creation, joy in communicating and having conversations with our creator. Now, there was a great deal of mysticism that went with that, that belief in miracles, in the proximity to God. And it became almost a reform movement of high emotion within Judaism. The Baal Shem Tov sent emissaries all over Eastern Europe. And these emissaries settled in different shtetls, in different villages and towns. And some of them established rabbinical dynasties. And thus we have slight differences between the Vishnits, the Lubavitch, the Satma, the Belts, and all the different strains of Hasidism. But one thing they had in common was the emphasis on joy, joy in our creation, and a closeness to God. Eliezer Wiesel, Eli Wiesel, was born in 1928 in a Hasidic village, a Vishnitzer Hasidic Hasidic village. Pearl? No. Was born in a village, the, uh, the village of Sigat in the Carpathian Mountains in what is now Romania. His beloved grandfather was a prominent member of the Vishnitsa Hasidic community. And Vishnitz the Vishnitz brand of Hasidism informed every facet of Elie Wiesel's growing up. His beloved grandfather filled him with Hasidic tales, with a sense of joy in creation, a feeling of closeness to God. Elie Wiesel always said, A big one? Thank you. Elie Wiesel always said that he learned reason from his father and faith, religion, from his mother and his grandfather. In 1944, when Elie Wiesel was 15 years old, Elie Wiesel and his family and 15,000 other Jews from Sigat were evacuated, deported by the fascists, the Germans and their Romanian collaborators to Auschwitz. Immediately upon their arrival, Elie Wiesel's mother and a sister were murdered. Elie Wiesel claimed to be 18 and therefore fit for work, and he became work unit a7713. 
three tattooed on his left arm. He and his father were assigned to the work camp near Auschwitz of Buna. On January the 19th, 1945, Elie Wiesel and his father and the rest of the 20,000 Jews in Buna were transferred to Buchenwald. They were transferred by forced march, death march. Of the 20,000 Jews who left Buna, 6,000 Jews arrived in Buchenwald. Elie Wiesel survived, so did his father Shlomo Wiesel, but his father Shlomo Wiesel died within days of dysentery and starvation. In 1945, after the camps were liberated, after Buchenwald was liberated, Elie Wiesel was placed in a series of orphanages in Paris. He kept his sanity by studying Talmud every day, as he had learned to do with his grandfather. He learned French, he studied philosophy, he worked variously as he got older as a choir master, a Hebrew teacher, and finally as a journalist. He also did a little work between 1946 and 47 <coughs> as a translator for the Irgun, the Irgun Zweilumi, one of the militant organizations for Israel's recreation and independence. In 1948, he joined the staff of the French newspaper L'Arche. And at the same time, he became a correspondent for various Israeli newspapers. His journalist career flourished, but he never wrote about and he never spoke about his experience in the Holocaust, HaShoah. He found the experience incomprehensible, obscene, and absurd in the technical meaning of absurd, that is, without meaning. He agreed at that time with the philosopher Theodor Adorno, who said that Auschwitz is beyond the reach of language. It would be barbaric to write poetry after Auschwitz. Elie Wiesel's silence on his experience of the Holocaust lasted for nine years. In 1954, he was very anxious to write, to have an interview with the then French Prime Minister, also Jewish, Pierre Mondes France. He wanted to get an in an introduction to Mondes France, and he thought that he could get that introduction through a well-known French writer, one of his heroes, the writer Francois Mauriac, who was his literary idol. He got the meeting with Francois Mauriac as a step towards meeting Mondes France, but when he talked to Mauriac, who was his idol, he always called Francois Mauriac the honor of France because Francois Mauriac had not collaborated with Vichy or the Germans during the occupation. When he talked with Mauriac, 
for the first time, he talked about his own experience of Auschwitz and Buchenwald. And Moriak broke down. And they both wept together. And Moriak said to him, you must write about what you lived. You must bear witness. After reflection, Elie Wiesel agreed to write. He talks often about it first to bear witness to the silent dead. Secondly, as a moral being, to try to find meaning in an experience that seemed to have no meaning. And thirdly, to write as a warning to the future. He says, I do not want anyone's future to be my past. He met Moriak in 1954. It took him two years to write, reflect, organize. 1956, he published his first book. He wrote it in Yiddish, his mother tongue, his mama lotion. It was, he wrote it in Yiddish. It was published in Yiddish by a publishing house in Buenos Aires. It had the Yiddish title, Und die Welt hat geschwiegen. And the world was silent. Two years later, it came out in French translation, 1958, as La Nuit. And then in 1960, as Night. Night. It was not a novel. It was a memoir. It cannot be a novel, because as Wiesel has said over and over again, I believe correctly, a novel, a fiction about Auschwitz, is either not a novel or it is not about Auschwitz. You cannot write fiction about Auschwitz. Did anyone read that abortion a few years ago, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas? That was an obscenity. I don't have time now, but I would be happy to explain afterwards why I think so. The only thing missing in that was the little German boy and the little Jewish boy singing Kumbaya. Yeah. <laughs> after a slow start, night in 1960, after a slow start, it began to sell and sell and sell. The world wasn't really ready for it, but the world got used to it. And it started to sell, and it sold in the tens of millions over the years. It has become night, a staple of teaching in every civilized country. It was my wife, Pearl, who is an was an award-winning high school teacher who introduced night into the curriculum of all high schools in Montreal, where we live. After night came more than 50 other books. I can't deal with many of them, but I would mention one <coughs> called The Accident. The Accident. It was written, it's a novel. It was written as a companion piece to night at the same time, although it didn't come out until 1961. It is about an Israeli journalist. 
a survivor of HaShoah, of the Holocaust, who was almost run over by a taxi. He comes to understand that he has subconscious guilt over surviving when so many people died. And that has led him to seek his own death. And Wiesel has said that of all his novels, the accident is perhaps the most autobiographical. And then more novels. And in 1992, this, After Night, perhaps my favorite novel, The Forgotten. But while he was writing novels, Wiesel also wrote scholarly works about the Hasidic sages, the Hasidic rabbis and the rebbers, the grand rabbis, who found a way to find joy in a threatening, a cruel, and often incomprehensible world. But in none of his works, in none of his novels, in none of his writing about the Hasidic sages, has Elie Wiesel ever succeeded in finding meaning in the Holocaust. He is faced, he says, with a paradox that will not go away. The Holocaust was absurd, that is without meaning, and yet we must attempt to find meaning because the Holocaust is, was, the central moral event of the 20th century. The only answer for Elie Wiesel is that he must continue to tell the story, to bear witness, to ask the question, what is the meaning? Because the only alternative is despair, to admit finally the meaninglessness, and to do that, he feels, would be to profane the dead. He must continue to grapple the with the dilemma of fashioning a meaningful future out of a past with no discernible meaning. That, but the important thing is that the story must be told. We must continue to try to find meaning, to impose meaning on something that perhaps has no meaning. We must speak and we must write because words have power. Words have power. The Dalai Lama, after he left Tibet to find sanctuary in India, finally came to North America. And the first person he asked to meet was Elie Wiesel. And the Dalai Lama's first question to Elie Wiesel was, I and many of my people have only just entered exile. How did your people survive 2,000 years of exile before you returned to your homeland? And Elie Wiesel said, when we left Jerusalem, we took with us a book. And that book and the words in the book have sustained us for 2,000 years. Words are important. I'm now very near to the novel, which is about words, words and memory. One last note. I said a moment ago that Hashoah, the Holocaust, was the central moral event of the last century. 
I have to explain that a little bit because I know that the death of a Jewish child is not more terrible or less than the death of an Armenian child or a Cambodian child or a Sudanese child. The death of any innocent, especially a child, is an obscenity. I know there have been other genocides, other massacres, but the Holocaust is unique because, first, it was perpetrated by the most cultivated and advanced civilization of its time. Second, it had as its aim not the subjugation of a people to the will of a dictator, not the forcing of a people into slavery, not the forcing of a people into accepting a new ideology. It had as its aim the extinction of a people down to the last child. And that makes it unique. In these days of Holocaust denial and revisionism, it is important to say, to use the words, to say them and to write them over and over again and without reservation that the Holocaust is unique. And now with great humility, I approach the novel, The Forgotten. It begins with an unbelievably powerful prayer by a Holocaust survivor who is faced with the onset of Alzheimer. I quote it. God of Auschwitz, know that I must remember Auschwitz and I must remind you of it. You spared me in time of danger that I may bear witness. And what witness can I bear without my memory? It's a tremendous, moving invocation. And I was struck not only by the insistence on the importance of memory, but by the intimacy of the conversation with God. And then, of course, I remembered Elie Wiesel is a chassid, a Vishnitzer chassid, and he talks to God. For Wiesel, Hasidism is not an abstract system of theology. It's not even an concept of the deity. Hasidism for Wiesel is the opposite of solitude. It is for Wiesel a sense of being bound up with other human beings in their love and their joy and distress and of being bound up with God in his joy and his love and his distress. For Wiesel, those Hasidic sages, rabbis and rebels from the Baal Shem Tov until now, were holy men who insisted on celebrating God and life no matter what misery they were subject to. He calls them titans of the spirit. Now, the man who made that prayer to the God of Auschwitz and any theory of God has to account for Auschwitz. The man who made that prayer to the God of Auschwitz is named Elhanan Rosenbaum. He will be our chief character, our protagonist. He is a survivor of the Holocaust. Now he is an old man, a widower, 
a religious teacher and a psychotherapist. He lives in New York City with his grown-up, his only son, Malkiel. Malkiel's mother died in childbirth. Malkiel is a successful journalist with the New York Times. Elhanan Rosenbaum is faced with the onset of Alzheimer and he calls upon his son Malkiel to bear witness in his place. And now the bulk of the narrative of the novel will consist of Elhanan dictating his memories to his son. And the story of Elhanan's the dictated story of his life will be interspersed with events from the life of his son, Malkiel. He is entrusting a strange mission to his son, Malkiel. His son is to go to Romania, to the village where Elhanan was born. And there he is to find, he is to locate a Gentile woman who was brutally assaulted in the last weeks of the war. But what would be the purpose of Malkiel finding this Gentile woman? The purpose is not made clear. I quote Elhanan's words to his son. I tell myself that you will discover in your own way what my lips cannot say. Now, for the purpose of talking about the novel, I'm going to rearrange the events of the novel. The events of the father's life, Elhanan Rosenbaum, into chronological order. Elhanan Rosenbaum, this fictitious creation, was born in the Carpathian Mountains in Romania in a little village called Feherfalu. His childhood, we learn, was magical. Like all the villagers, like all the villagers who are Vishnitsa Hasidim, like all the villagers, Elhanan grows up to see God everywhere. He sees God in his grandfather's love of him, in his love of his grandfather, in his grandfather's love of the rabbi. There are wonderful Hasidic stories. There's a strong man in the village. There are mysterious events. Elhanan is persuaded by his grandfather to forgive the evil spirit that lives in the well of the village. It's a wonderful Hasidic village full of miracles, full of wonder, and full of love. The childhood of Elhanan Rosenbaum was dense and filled with mystery and love and wonder in a God-informed universe. For me, as I read his memory of Ferfalu, that village, it reminded me more than anything else of Chagall's village, of Vitebsk. When Chagall wrote, painted the shtetl that he came from. You remember, in the novel and in Chagall's paintings, the colors are glorious. The colors are bright. The rabbi can work wonders. If you are in love, you can fly. And there is music everywhere. And all things are possible. And at this point in the text, Wiesel's writing comes close to lyric poetry, 
consider this passage. I believed my grandfather stronger than a lion. He spoke to me and I listened. I spoke to him and he listened. He meditated in silence and I meditated with him. I listened even when he was meditating. It was he who taught me to love fields and valleys, the shepherd's flutes calling their flocks, the wind rustling the leaves just before a storm. Every blade of grass possessed its own song, said our rabbi. And Elhanan loved hearing the song of the earth mingled with the song of the sky. Exquisite poetry. And then just a little later, a page later, perhaps, brusquely, shockingly, Elie Wiesel changes from lyric poetry to harsh prose. The fascists had seized power in Bucharest. Gangs of the Iron Guard were raiding synagogues and Jewish homes. The police were neutral. Rumors spread in the village of Feherfalu but no one is sure what is happening in the outside world. So they decide to send a boy. No one will notice a boy. They'll send El Hanan to the neighboring larger community of Stanislav. And so he is sent. They bribe a Hungarian officer to accompany him. But when he is in Stanislav, the ghetto is sealed off. He's unable to escape, unable to get back to the village. He's conscripted into a Jewish labor battalion to serve the fascists. And it will be many months before he can return to his village. He will only find out later that when the fascists came to his village, they appointed his beloved grandfather to be the elder of the Jews. They are going to deport all the Jews to camps. They want the deportation to go without incident. So they say to the elder of the Jews, his grandfather, we don't want trouble. We want you to give us 10 names of local Jews. They will be hostages for your good behavior. And El Hanan's grandfather, who taught him his faith, sits down and writes his own name ten times. I am moved because it's in, the, it's in the novel, but I know that it happened on three separate occasions in Eastern Europe. Of course, his grandfather is beaten to death for his insolence. In the meantime, El Anan has escaped from the labor battalion. He has joined the partisans. Now there are foolish critics of Elie Wiesel who say that the only mood he is capable of speaking in or writing in is melancholy. I would point out that I have already referred to a passage of poetry to brusque prose, but now let me say that El Hanan's exploits with the partisans are as exciting as anything that you will find in Jack Higgins or Tom Clancy or, or Grisham or God Save the Mark, Dan Brown. 
Elie Wiesel has a fast narrative pace in the action sequences which lead to powerful and effective crescendos and climaxes in the partisans' attacks on German patrols and groups of German officers in restaurants. El Hanan, in his dictated memories, El Hanan, now a Jewish resistance fighter, has love affairs which are both tender and moving, first with Yitka and then with Lianka, two partisans who are both killed in action. And Elie Wiesel is as skillful, as adept, as Hemingway in writing about love affairs against a background of war, the link between sex and violence, love and violence, love and death. The end of the war finds El Hanan in the displaced persons camp, a DP camp in Germany. And in that camp, he meets a Zionist agent, a young woman who persuades him to come with her on an illegal ship to break the British blockade to get to Palestine and to fight for Israel's independence. They are stopped at sea by the British. But the girl, Talia, is Palestinian-born. She has the right of abode, the right of residence in Palestine. They conduct a hasty marriage on the ship, and that confers on El Hanan the right to live in Palestine. And they get to Palestine, and they fight together for Israel's independence. Talia with the Irgun, the Irgun Zvailumi. El Hanan fights with Lehi in the battle for Jerusalem. El Hanan is captured wounded, captured by the Jordanians. After the armistice, El Hanan is returned to Jerusalem only to discover that Talia has died in childbirth. El Hanan loves Israel, he loves Jerusalem, but he is bereft. He cannot live with the memories of Talia. He accepts the sponsorship offered by a distant cousin, and he goes to make a new life in the United States, in New York, with his baby son. But always, El Hanan Rosenbaum is haunted by two things. First, he is unable to give meaning to what he has lived through. And second, he is tormented by one particular experience. It was when he returned with fellow partisans to his village to find that his grandfather and his whole family had been wiped out. In an act of revenge, a fellow partisan called Itzik, a violent man already known as Itzik the Avenger, in an act of revenge, Itzik finds and brutally rapes the widow of the local fascist leader, Zoltan Kalnescu. El Hanan comes upon the rape in progress. He begs his friend to stop, but he does not intervene physically to stop the attack. 
All he can do is to rage afterwards against Itzik. Can you reduce our whole tragedy to one bestial act? For Elhanan in the novel and for Wiesel in reality, whatever meaning is to be found in horror, it will not be found in revenge. For Elhanan in the novel as for Wiesel in life, a person has to be, above all things, a moral being. As Elhanan is dictating his experiences to his son, he says to his son, I saw a crime committed. I forgot our precepts, our laws, that require an individual to struggle against evil wherever it appears. Elhanan arrives in New York with his baby son to make a new life after 1948. The early years are very difficult. He gets a job as a cantor in a German language synagogue, but his German isn't good enough. He gets a job as an announcer on a Jewish radio station, but his Yiddish is too good, too scholarly. He tries to sell art books, but his English isn't good enough. He tries to press shirts in a laundry, but his arms aren't strong enough. But he manages, and he studies, and he goes to Brooklyn College. And finally, he becomes a psychotherapist. He specializes in counseling and trying to help survivors of HaShoah, of the Holocaust. And we are told some of his cases. And I find the cases brilliantly evocative of the moral confusion, the apparent absurdity of what these people had lived through. I quote, The man who could not forgive himself for having refused a piece of bread to a friend back there. The rich businessman who woke in the middle of the night went into his study, locked it, and wept. The woman who alone in her kitchen stood in front of a mirror and pushed food into her mouth. One man said, in a camp in Poland, I saw a German officer slaughter a father in front of his four children. That day, I lost my faith. Another man, in a camp in Poland, I saw the extreme of human solidarity. I saw three strangers who sacrificed their sleep and their health to save a sick prisoner. That day, my faith was restored. Elhanan makes his new life. His son grows to adulthood. And then we meet them at the beginning of the novel. And we have the touching duet between father and son as Elhanan, with memory fading, begins his story to his son. And one passage struck me with particular force. 
I am a father and a grandfather, and many of my friends I am losing to Alzheimer. Distinguished friends with great minds. And one passage struck me. It touches on both love and the importance of memory. The doctor has made his firm diagnosis. And Malkiel, with his throat tight and his eyelids heavy, says to his father, Listen to me, father. You have always been at the center of my universe, and you always will be until the end of my days. A sob shook El Hanan. God of my fathers, let me remember those words when I have forgotten everything else. By the way, this son, Malkiel, I've not given him much time so far. His mother died in childbirth in Jerusalem. He is, when we meet him grown up, he is a well-known journalist who works at the New York Times, among other things. He's the editor of the prestigious obituary page. <laughs> it's very important. He has an intense and loving relationship with his father, Elhanan. He has had many love affairs, an early one with his promiscuous cousin, Rita and one love-hate relationship with an Arab student, Leila. During the novel, he has an affair with a German woman, a decent woman, a good one, woman, but the burden of memory and the burden of history is too much for them. And then he meets his true love, Tamar. Tamar, also a journalist with the New York Times, better known than he is. And the circumstances of their meeting, I think, are worth our attention. I quote, their first meeting at the Times, at the end of the 70s, Tamar was a political reporter, a star. Malkiel was a rewrite man. She brought in some copy, gave it to the editor. He scanned it, dropped it on Malkiel's desk, cut it down a little, not too much. Tamar doesn't like people... Uh, tampering with her copy. It was a piece about a local political campaign. Charges, countercharges. Malkiel knew his stuff. Melt down the fat. Cut the, cut the uh, coloratura. The classic rule of good journalism. Honor the verb, sacrifice the adjective. And then the rhythm. Careful about pace and rhythm. An easy job. All technique. Quickly accomplished. The piece ran on page one. His boss was obviously pleased, not Tamar. She was famous and she knew it. <laughs> now that's a marvelous passage and from the point of view of style, the point of view of style, it is absolutely unbeatable. While I was still teaching in either language, I used to photocopy that page, give it to my students, those who had ambitions to write. Because Vissel is using a technique called stichomythia, stichomythia, in which brief staccato phrases and sentences create the illusion of action, the illusion of movement, the illusion of excitement. 
It's the basis of much good newspaper writing, and I thought it witty and effective and ingenious of Elie Wiesel to use a newspaper writing technique to describe the meeting of two newspaper people. In spite of their rather shaky beginning, Malkiel and Tamar fall deeply in love, and that love is nurtured by Tamar's sensitivity to Malkiel's father and his Alzheimer. She says at one point to Malkiel, I quote, I know you think of your father and you despair. From now on, I'll think of him too, so as not to despair. He's sinking into old age. We will remember him as he was. And again, it is there, the importance of memory. Love bestows immortality on those we love by remembering them. And we also may bestow immortality on those we love by living for them. I quote a rabbi's advice to Malkiel. Speak in his place. Pray in his name. Do what he is incapable of doing. Learn since he no longer learns. Be happy since he no longer laughs. And then Malkiel goes alone on his mission to Feherfalu, to his father's village in Romania. He meets a glorious and willing interpreter, Lydia, but he is intent on his pilgrimage. He locates the grave digger who buried his father's beloved grandfather. He meets an old blind Jew who tells him wonderful Hasidic stories. And finally, he locates and talks to the victim of Itzik's rape. He talks to the woman reluctantly under his gentle questioning. She relives in words. She tells the story of those terrible moments. And in the words spoken aloud, she finds some kind of relief, some kind of meaning, <clears throat> meaning some kind of catharsis. Wiesel seems to be telling us that words are important. Silence is not the answer. Now, what meaning the woman found in the restoration of memory, in the retelling of the story, in the words that come from her mouth, we cannot know. But it is clear that memory spoken aloud has made a difference. I quote, Relief, relief softened Elena Kalinescu's face. Little by little, she grew calm. Will you allow an old woman to thank you and to kiss you? She kissed his forehead. Thank you for coming. She kissed him again and thank your father. And that really is the end of the novel. Malkiel, there is more. Malkiel will return to New York. And he and Tamar will build a future. They will bicker. Tamar, Malkiel thinks, is a little too fond of putting the Palestinian side in the Arab-Israeli debate. But Tamar will help him to weather El-Hanan's last days. And that leads me 
almost to a final point. Strangely enough, it's about humor. It is odd to think that there can be humor in a novel like this about horror and forgetting and rape. But there is humor, and it's very well done. i quote an example. See if you agree. <clears throat> the example I have in mind is when Malkiel is first invited to meet Tamar's family. I quote, Malkiel occupied the place of honor to the right of the lady of the house. She had roasted the traditional turkey. Unfortunately, Malkiel detested turkey. <laughs> eat, eat, you'll enjoy it, Tamar's mother said, a true Jewish mother. I'm a vegetarian, Malkiel said. <laughs> Tamar, her mother said, you never told me you were marrying a vegetarian. What is that, a vegetarian? What religion is that? <laughs> Don't make a fuss, mother. You can be Jewish and vegetarian at the same time. <laughs> but Turkey is kosher, I swear it. <laughs> Leave him alone, Tamar said. He's not much of an eater. Oosh, oosh, the mother said, I feel for you. Men who don't eat much, don't eat, make good husbands. <laughs> and you laugh, and you laugh aloud. And that is good. And yet you are laughing as we talk about a book that is trying to find meaning in horror. Now, I have heard Elie Wiesel talk about the humor in his books and justify the humor in his books. I quote him. I always try to teach my students that Jewish law in matters of mourning is very special. You cannot go beyond a certain period of mourning. There is shiva for a week, for a month, sloishim. Then for a year we mourn. Then we stop on Yatsait, the anniversary, we say Kaddish. But that is all. One should not go too far in mourning. We should mourn in remembrance. But Jewish history and life are more than that. We must go beyond all that. We cannot stay anchored in melancholy. He is telling us, Wiesel, there is a life to live and a world to heal, to make better. Tikkun olam. We must remember, we must honor memory, we must tell the story, we must try to find meaning, but at the same time, Wiesel tells us, we must celebrate life, as did all the Hasidic masters since the Baal Shem Tov, often in circumstances of incredible misery. Laughter is part of the celebration of life in remembering and telling the story, in constantly questioning ourselves, in knowing ourselves as moral beings, in seeking meaning where no meaning may exist, and in laughing, in celebrating life, is our victory. To do anything else is to betray the martyrs. On a personal note, On November the 4th, 2008, Dr. Wiesel came to speak at a fundraiser in Montreal. 
and I was asked to host the ceremonies and to present him. I spent time with him. And in the evening, I gave my opening address. Let me read just a part of it. To list all of Dr. Wiesel's honors would be to take the whole evening. He holds more than 130 honorary doctorates from all over the world. He has been a United States citizen since 1963 and a professor of humanities at Boston University since 1978. He holds the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Congressional Gold Medal. From the State of Israel, he holds the Jabotinsky Medal. In France, he is a commander of the Légion d'Honneur and he has been knighted by the Queen of England. In 1980, he became the founding chairman of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council. In 1986, he received the Nobel Peace Prize. And in the same year, he established the Ellie and Marion Wiesel Foundation for Humanity with the twin causes of peace and human rights. In the 1960s, Elie Wiesel went again and again to Russia to comfort the persecuted Jews of the Soviet Union. In the 1970s, he wrote, he spoke, he marched, he shouted against apartheid in South Africa. In the 1980s, he flew food to the starving in Cambodia. In the 1990s, he harangued, he bullied the President Clinton into intervening to stop the genocide in Bosnia. In 2006, he addressed the Security Council of the United Nations on the genocide that is taking place in Darfur. Elie Wiesel is never silent whenever and wherever Human beings endure suffering and humiliation. He is our witness and our memory. He is the expressed and articulated conscience of my generation. Meeting Elie Wiesel that first time, November the 4th, 2008, gave me the chance to acknowledge to him a debt I owed him apart from the instruction and the pleasure I had had from reading his work. I acknowledged that debt to him privately and I repeated it later that evening on stage. On that terrible day, September the 11th, 2001, 9-11, I was in a hotel room in Toronto, Canada. I was due to lecture that night as part of a series at the University of Toronto's Hart House Theatre. It was the morning. Pearl, my wife, called me to the television and we watched in horror as the murderers crashed the second plane into the towers. Like everybody else in the civilized world, I was distraught I didn't know what to do. I wanted to cancel my lecture. I was speaking that night. 
It was one of a series on a British humorous writer, Zadie Smith, and her novel White Teeth, and the social implications in English society. I had prepared some silly stories, some memories of my own when I lived in London, when I studied in London. I had it all ready, and I wanted to cancel. But I didn't cancel. I did go on that stage that night, and I gave the lecture I had prepared with all the foolish stories, silly jokes. I spoke for an hour and a half, and I cried all the time. And I explained to the audience when I began why I did not cancel. I paraphrased Elie Wiesel's words, and I acknowledged the source of those words. I said to my audience, Elie Wiesel has taught us that in the face of apparently meaningless horror, we must go on, we must continue to celebrate life, to search for meaning, to find love, even to laugh, because to do anything else, to give way to indifference or despair, would be to give victory to the beast. And I thank you very much for listening to me. I thank you very much. Someone once said to me, I've been reviewing books, well, I've been teaching most of my life, but I've been reviewing novels maybe 30 years. Someone said, uh, how do you do it? And I said, I choose good books. <laughs> they make me look smart. I, would be tr I will try to answer any question you have. If I might, might anticipate the question, I do not have an accent. <coughs> this is how English is supposed to be. <coughs> While you think of more serious topics, I will give you, Ari gave me a lovely introduction, but I, I was born in a village in South Wales in the United Kingdom. My mother spoke Welsh, my father did not, although he was Welsh. My language, my mama lotion, is Welsh. I spoke it with my mother until I was 11, and then she stopped speaking in Welsh to me because she thought it would interfere with my schooling, uh, which perhaps was a mistake. So my Welsh uh, is that of a very stupid child. <laughs> I studied in Wales, I'd finished high school, I'd won a scholarship uh, to university, but I was a little young, I was not quite 17. My father was a very good man, had no uh, very modest means. I was tired of my village, and I wanted to go where there was excitement and color and painting and sculpture and 
lots of clubs and pubs and <laughs> excitement. So I said to my father, Father, I would like to be independent. And my father said, be my guest. <laughs> so I got on a train and I went the 200 miles to London. I had five pounds, then $12 and a little case. I had the anticipation of a scholarship uh, to come in one year's time. Anyway, I went to London. I stayed there. I did all kinds of stuff. I had a little restaurant. I, I had the 11th with a Sikh partner. I had a, the 11th Indian restaurant in London. <laughs> there are now half a million. Yeah. But we were the 11th. We called our hole in the wall in Belsize Park uh, in Hampstead. We called our hole, our hole in the wall the gay lord. Because the gay lord in India is like the Ritz. <laughs> I had a little restaurant. I went to university. I went initially to the London School of Economics. That's my first degree. Uh, I've never enjoyed economics. I, I know what the words mean when I read the financial pages. But it seemed to me then and it seems to me now that economists spend their whole time explaining why their predictions of six months ago didn't come true. <laughs> so I, I left it. I did other stuff. I was in the army. I was a British Army officer for a, a little while. Uh, and then I came out, I did all kinds of things. And then as a result of some heavy gambling losses, and I had to find a job to pay my creditors, I took a job as a replacement term, a replacement term supply teacher in the Elephant and Castle in London. It was a slum school where nobody wanted to teach. If the body was warm, you could teach. <laughs> I found I liked teaching. I wasn't good at it, but I got better. I liked my students, although some of them hurt me. Uh, um, it was like to serve with love, except my experience was true, and Braithwaite, Braithwaite's wasn't. He went to the school, and they hated him. He left the school, and they hated him. Uh, so anyway, I, I decided to leave London after about 10 years, and I wrote to everyone in the world who might imply a, a teacher with minimum experience and I had a reply from uh, Canada, cut a long story short, I came to Montreal, I, uh, I went back to university, I took a couple more degrees, I qualified myself a little better, I met a Montrealer and the rest is history. <laughs> But my accent, because I'm bilingual, I taught at uh, Concordia University and I was uh, chair of the language department at a Franco French language college, Collège de Bois de Boulogne. I was a uh, chef de département. Uh, so that's why my accent is a funny mixture, and I think I have a slight cold coming on, so there's a little hoarseness, which only adds romance, I think. <laughs> <laughs> now, having got through all that foolishness, is there a question? A real question? I start over there. Yes. Thank you. I, because our daughter, our daughter sitting at the back, uh, Ondine, one of our four children, was a ballerina. She began in Montreal with Les Grands Ballets Canadiens. Later, she danced in Israel with the Israeli classical ballet. On tour in North America, she met a young Californian. 
But at the day, lots of things happened. She went back to university, took a degree in French literature at Irvine, and now teaches French and ballet. So we come to Laguna Beach fairly often. And uh, I did speak at the artists' theater, the high school theater, five years ago. I had talked to Dr. Hosseini about Kite Runner. And he had told me he was going to write Thousand Splendid Sons. He said, I want to write next a book from a woman's point of view. But I did enjoy it. I had a wonderful audience. I did, I did two books. I, I, I also did... I did my favorite novel for the last 30 years by uh, a writer born in India but living in Toronto, Rohinton Mystery. He wrote A Fine Balance. Uh, I, I know him. We have the same publisher, which is I don't sell much and he sells a lot. Uh, but I do know him and he's a wonderful man. That's funny you remembered that. Thank you. Uh, yes. I just wanted to mention that when Elie Wiesel got his, uh, his uh, Nobel, yeah. he wanted them to play, you can choose the music you want to hear. Oh, I did not. And uh, he wanted them to play Anima Amin, Anima Amin, and they didn't have the music. So he went to the microphone and he sang it to the entire crowd there. <laughs> he was, as I mentioned, after the war, he earned his living as a Hebrew teacher and a choir master, he has a very fine voice. He comes here to Chapman once he, a year. I understand he is a visiting professor a visiting once a year professor. for a week at Chapman. A week at Chapman, and I go every time, and we have dinners with him. And he is a wonderful man. Amazing, amazing man. But to, to do that in front of all the Nobel laureates, an amazing. I would think Elie Wiesel, given his early background and what he survived. I cannot imagine he would be afraid of any situation. <laughs> what is left to frighten him? Yeah. You had a question. Yes, yeah. sir. I noticed that this book is translated by Stephen Becker. Mm. It's translated from the Yiddish. Which book? The Forgotten? Yes. Uh, the Forgotten, in 1982. 1982. 1992. I'm working out when he... Uh, the reason I ask you is because I also was very taken with the poetic passages. Yes. And I wondered if that, if, if it was, my Zeta used to tell me I can't translate it. So I'm wondering, are those poetic passages actually... Well, there's a problem. You see, I, I should, I can't remember when he started, you see, he can write in French. Mm -hmm. He finds it easiest to write now in French. I think the forgotten was written in French. It's not translated from the Hebrew. Or the Yiddish, sorry. It's translated from the French. Because French is the language he came to in 1945 and the language he became a journalist in. But your point about poetry is very good. You know the, the bits of poetry that we know in translation. I'm thinking of Homer. You know the Odyssey? The best-known phrase is the wine-dark sea. Homer didn't write that. <laughs> Chapman put it in the translation. Oh. Tell you another. The Rubaiyat of Umakayam. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on. Umakayam didn't write that. <laughs> Fitzgerald wrote it. You know Scott? Zelda? Fitzgerald wrote it. The moving finger writes and having ruled. 
rhythm moves on, nor all your piety, nor wit, etc., etc. Of the, the, I reviewed an Israeli writer, Amos Oz. Oy, oy, oy. Oh, better. I reviewed Amos Oz. I remember reviewing my Michael. My Michael. I have six grandchildren, one of whom lives in Laguna Beach, now in her fourth year at Berkeley. My six grandchildren mean a great deal for me, but I never knew how to put it into words. There is a passage at the end of My Michael by Amos Oz. Oh, sorry, it's FEMA. FEMA. It's, Pearl is correcting me. It's at the end of FEMA by Amos Oz, where a grandfather, Baruch Nomberg, is leaving uh, his property. It's his will. And he says, to my grandson, Yisrael Dimitri, who is the delight of my soul. And I thought, how beautiful. Who is the delight of my soul. And then I found out that that's not what it, in Hebrew, it's the light of my soul. The translator put in, the delight of my soul. And what all that adds up to is that sometimes the translator is very gifted. In this, in this case, I don't know. But it, it is, and I should have noted it, translated from the French. He is still most at ease in French, although he writes a tremendous amount in English. There was a... Yes? In meeting Elie Wiesel, yes. anything surprised you? Well, I'd heard him speak, and I'd seen him speak a number of times before. So his appearance, he's not a big man, you know, he's a, a slight man, and uh, he, he's not a young man, of course, he's, what, in the 85 now? Uh, nothing surprised me. I'd heard him speak, I'd seen him speak, I'd watched him on television. Um, I'll tell you one thing that always surprised me, was his patience. The event, I said I was asked, to host, be the master of ceremonies at an event, a fundraiser. The fundraiser was Hasidic. It was to raise money for the Hayamushka Seminary, a girls' school. It was organized by Lubavitch. I am Jewish. I am not a follower of the Rebbe. I'm not uh, Lubavitch. Far from it. But I have many friends in the community. When Elie Wiesel got up to speak, he was more patient than I could have believed possible with an audience who wouldn't shut up. <laughs> Not unbelievable. Have you noticed in the Shema, our basic prayer, how does the Shema begin in English? Hear, O Israel. No. Listen! That's a cute one. It's a true one. Yes. He's a patient man, a beautiful man. Boston. I'm sorry. And, <laughs> <laughs> and my, my good friend was Ellie Wiesel's personal secretary for 20 years really? at Boston University. Yeah. And most of her job was translating his work from French into English. Is that right? On the passing of my mother, Ella Shalom, in 1993, my friend Martha gave me an autographed copy of this book. Oh, how wonderful. Now, the second thing is, I wanted to know what your take was. Can you explain how the very last sentence in this book doesn't end? 
it just leaves you. And I'm wondering if we're supposed to imagine that uh, he has forgotten what he was going to say. Yes. So. Oh, I'm sorry. You're quite right. I should have pointed it out. Uh, The forgotten is, of course, largely the dictated memories of a man who is slipping into the twilight of Alzheimer. Yeah. El Hanan speaking. Thank you. I should have. I should have read it. God cannot be so cruel as to erase everything forever, for if He were, He would not be our Father, and nothing would make sense. And I, who speak to you, cannot say more for... <coughs> thank you. I'm, it was an omission. I thank you very much. And notice the fear in that last paragraph. Cannot make sense. I don't want to go into theology. There are people, the rabbi and so on, far better able than I but I'm always reminded that in our sacred books, the demand of Job that God explain himself was much more pleasing to God than the glib, facile, traditional explanations given by Eliphaz and Zophar and the others. The demand that God explain himself, the demand that God give meaning, that God makes sense of what he does. It must make sense. God gave us intelligence. What you, speaking to the creator, what you do should make sense. And it is there in that final paragraph. And it's that that Wiesel talks about all the time. What is the meaning of the Holocaust? What was it for, given an omnipotent God? What's the meaning? And then, of course, the only meaning is that given in Chapter 42 of the book of Job. I'll quote it from the King James Version because I like the poetry. Job is demanding God explain himself. And God said, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the world? Canst thou draw up Leviathan with an hook? And in the face of all the images of God's power, Job says, now mine eye seeth thee. In other words, now I understand that I cannot understand. And yet, we demand sense. We demand meaning. And that demand, the exercise of our reason, is pleasing to God. Is there another question? Yes. This is my friend from the Crystal Cruise. We were last together sailing on the high seas. When I saw him, I suddenly looked around. Where are the waiters? Where is the champagne? I felt transported back to Crystal Serenity, listening to you today. Did Ellie Wazell have a motive in writing that book that he feared, like the protagonist's father, that he was going to lose his memory at some point in the future. Well, did Wiesel write the book thinking that he would lose his memory? He wrote it back in 92. I chose it because so many of my friends are sinking into mm -hmm. Alzheimer. No, at the time, I don't think that was a real fear. His fear is that he will die before he can find sense, meaning. 
what happened to me, what happened to my family, what, what does it mean? And Wiesel, as a chassid, has these conversations every day with God. Explain yourself. That's why Elhanan says, oh God of Auschwitz, and I must remind you of Auschwitz. It was very sentimental and saccharine and sugary, but you know, fiddler on the roof, the conversations of Tevye, it's, they're better in Shalom Aleichem stories, but it is an intimate conversation. And God is sometimes put on the mat, you know. You explain yourself, because it must make sense. It should make sense. God gave us intelligence. God gave us reason. Pearl is making signs to me. Yes. Either she's leaving me or I have to stop. Thank you very much.